Psalm 108. This is a song, a psalm of David. O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise, even with my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. And I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkot. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet for my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom, I will cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I will triumph. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me to Adam? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. All right, our uh, sermon today is entitled uh, Returning to the Promised Land. This is Ruth 1 verses 15 through 22. So I'm going to go ahead and read you those verses first. Uh, Ruth 1, starting in the 15th verse, says, this contains one of the most moving set of verses in the entire Bible, in all of the Bible. And I'll mention this again during the sermon, but listen to the words of Ruth. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Uh, because this video is separate from the uh, Prophecy Update I do every week, I want to remind the people that are watching on the video that we do have live streaming now uh, at the Superior Word. So if you're watching and you want to attend with us on a Thursday Bible study, or if you want to attend with us during the Sunday sermon, um, you can click on to superiorword.org backslash live. And I'll put that on the video as well, if I remember. And uh, that that way you can participate, you can take communion with us, whatever you want to do, or you can continue to watch on YouTube. However, the Thursday night Bible studies are not included in the, uh, uh, I don't do a video on them. It's not possible for me to do it because of the format that we have. But uh, uh, considering what we just read, this text from Ruth, we need to remember that as we walk along life's highway, we never really know where we're going, do we? I mean, we may have plans, we may have maps, and we may have gas for a trip. But in reality, we are as blind to what will happen one second from now as if our physical eyes were blind and we were on a twisted, crooked, dangerous path. And I'm going to give you an example of a video I saw about two weeks ago on uh, Facebook. Somebody posted it. There was an accident on a highway. A guy slid into another car and the car started to turn and he was flung out of that window. And he literally went probably 30 stories or, or 300 feet in the air cartwheeling his arms were out and you know he landed and that was the end of him but one second earlier that guy did not realize that his final moment on earth was at that point and not to be morbid here but as we sit in church right now a meteor could come through the roof and it could destroy us it could crush the entire strip mall that we're in a car could come right through the front wall of this building and it could crush all of us except maybe me i've got the pulpit in front of me but the rest of you would be goners or a jetliner could come through it's on its way to Sarasota Airport, it loses an engine, it loses power, and it would plow through all of us, including me behind the pulpit, like a steamroller. It would be the end of us. And yet we sit here contently, despite having actually no control at all around of anything around us. Naomi had left Bethlehem to go to Moab with her family, and she lost everything. 
When she left, she had no idea what would happen. Now, as she's starting her trip back to Israel, she has no idea what's going to transpire there as well. Each moment of our life is uncertain, and without God, it is a useless, vain existence which ultimately ends in futility. However, with God, the unseen future may still be a mystery, but it is not futile. Whatever happens along the way, the end, the final destination is assured. Naomi struggled to see this, but we have her life which is recorded to show us more than what she could see. And that brings us to our text verse today, which comes from Isaiah chapter 42. I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. The Bible, with its many unusual stories and hard-to-figure details, is still very plain nonetheless. It shows us where we were, where we are, and where we're headed to. And even though the details of our lives are left out, the Bible shows us the truth that there is an overarching plan by the hand of providence which is guiding us, and it's guiding all things to a very good end for those who are willing to accept its premises. It is a book which tells a much greater story than we might possibly imagine. That God has a plan, that it is being worked out, and that it centers on his entrance into the world in order to make all things right. It is all focused on Jesus Christ. Naomi did not know this, but we do. And so with the assurance that God loves us enough to give us his son and to reveal him in his superior word, let's turn to that word again. And may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today, as I usually do. The first is, wherever you go, I will go. This is verses 15 through 18. Verse 15 begins with, And she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her gods, to her people and to her gods. Orpah has turned away to return home. Thus, as we saw last week, she lived up to the name that was given to her at birth. Orpah means the mane or the back of the neck. As she walked away, this is the last of what they saw of her. And so as they watch her depart, Naomi says to Ruth words that are filled with true sadness. She has gone back to her people and to her gods. In this verse is a confirmation that Orpah and Ruth had both previously accepted the God of Israel as their God when they married into the family. One cannot turn back to something that they had never left. Therefore, if they had to, if they had left Moab's form of worship in order to unite to Israel, then she could turn back to that form of worship. Now with her husband dead and with her mother-in-law departing, she is turning back to what is known as Chemosh, the god of Moab. She has become an apostate to the true faith of Israel. Instead of going to the land of promise and seeking out the face of God who gives both blessing and hardship at his will, she has turned her neck from Jehovah to that which is not God and is thus completely dropped from the biblical narrative from this point on. In her words to Ruth about Orpah, she uses the term Elohim, translated here in the plural as gods. However, the word she uses does not necessarily mean a plurality. It could be a singular or a plural. A way of translating it so that this term would be understandable would be that she went back to her own forms of worship. Because there is neither an adjective nor a verb to indicate number, we can't clearly translate the thought. But a way of understanding the word of Elohim, be it the true God or the term Elohim, which is used of the gods of the nations, is that it is over there. Elohim is in another realm, and that is where worship is directed. Verse 15 continues, return after your sister-in-law. As Orpah fades into the distance, Naomi now speaks again to Ruth. Are her words sincere that she wants to return with Orpah? Or are they a final test of her allegiance to the God of Israel? I will tell you that the latter is certainly correct. She has already several times and in various ways shown that following the Lord requires understanding that hard times come with worshiping him. Her words that Orpah has gone back to her people and to her gods means that she wasn't willing to accept this premise. And she felt that the God of Moab would be more responsive to her physical needs and desires than the Lord would be. And this is exactly, I mean exactly, what drives people from Christianity or a right exercise of it. We're self-centered beings, and what we desire most is gratification and satisfaction in the right now. 
People will walk away from the faith because of all types of reasons. A perfect example is the loss of a dear loved one. They will blame God for their sadness. And people will ignore the parts of the Bible that they don't like or that they don't agree with because their relationship with God is about them, not about him. I saw that on Facebook this past week with a lady. I have a couple people in here that happened to follow along with that post and made their own comments. It was all about her relationship with him, not how he is trying to work in her life. We want all of the good and we want none of the bad, but that is not how it works in reality. Naomi has taken and she's placed the reality of the situation before the daughters and one has turned. The second is standing right there on the battlefield and the lines are drawn and they're set. This is a battle not at all unlike that which Jacob faced on the banks of the Jabbok River. If you remember that when he wrestled with God on the banks of the river. As Fuller says, God wrestled with Jacob with desire to be conquered. So Naomi no doubt opposed Ruth, hoping and wishing that she herself might be foiled. The fact is that Naomi does hope to be foiled in her attempt to persuade Ruth to depart but she is not willing to be defeated without presenting the reality of the situation of which Ruth will face if she does go along. She must continue to embrace the God she had when life was much sweeter. Would she be willing to do so? And the answer is yes, and it comes in one of the most memorable passages in the entire body of sacred scripture. It is comparable to the words of Esther before her time of fasting and trial, and it is comparable to the words of Job when he was told to curse God and die. Ruth's words are even as confident and as faithful of, as those of Mary as she spoke out the words of the Magnificat to Elizabeth. And her words begin with this, verse 16, But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you. To entreat is to ask somebody earnestly or anxiously to do something, even to beg. Naomi has entreated Ruth numerous times in various heightening ways to thoughtfully consider her choice to go with her to Israel. And now Ruth asks for the begging to cease. Stop it. Stop it. She will not be deterred and the breath is wasted on the continuing of such requests. She will remain steadfastly with her and by her side. Verse 16 goes on, or to turn back from following after you. Naomi had just said, return after your sister-in-law. Instead, Ruth will follow Naomi. Where Orpah goes will be up to Orpah. Her choice is made, but she will go alone. Where Naomi goes is where Ruth will follow. Naomi will have company on the path that she takes back to the land of promise. Verse 16 continues, for wherever you go, I will go. Whatever difficulties lay ahead, no matter what trials would come or the hardships on the journey, Ruth would accompany her. Didn't Naomi have the same distance to walk? Wouldn't she also be tired? Wouldn't there be the same chance of robbers or beasts attacking them on the highway? It'd be the same for her as it would for Naomi. If so, and if Naomi is older and more frail, then certainly Ruth could face the same challenges. If there were mountains to climb, she too would climb those mountains. If there were rivers to cross, she would cross them. If there were sharp, difficult stones to walk over, she would walk over them with her. But more than the physical trials was the surety that the God that she was following would be there too. Through both good and testing, Ruth had certainly heard the family stories about the God of Israel, how he had led them through the, the wilderness after being brought out of the land of Egypt, and then he took them over the Jordan River. He was with Israel as they subdued the Canaanites, and he would be with them as they traveled. Like Rahab, at the time when Israel entered the land of Canaan, Ruth was willing to live by faith because she knew of the power and the omnipresence of the Lord Jehovah. Some years later, her own great-grandson, David, would demonstrate the same understanding of the Lord when he would pen these words in the 139th Psalm. He said, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Ruth now understood this and she trusted in the providence of the Lord enough to commit to following Naomi on her travel home. Verse 16 continues, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. The NIV translates it, 
Where you stay, I will stay. Now this might give the impression of the house that they're heading to. The reference, however, is not to the final destination, but to the nightly stops on the way to that destination. The verb loon indicates to spend the night. It could be a cottage on the highway. It could be a cave in the mountain. Or it could be sleeping under the stars with a stone under their head for a pillow, just like Jacob once slept. Whatever place they stopped, both on the journey to Canaan or any place during their earthly walk once in Canaan, she would be willing to sleep in that exact same spot. Verse 16 continues, Your people shall be my people. Amech ami. In the Hebrew, there is no verb. Your people, my people. In her mind and forever afterward, Naomi's people would be her people. She, whether accepted by them or not, was counting herself and her destiny entwined with Israel's common destiny. The blessings they would receive from the heavens would be showered on her as well. The famines or wars that they faced would be her portion and her lot. Should the mountains fall and the earth beneath her feet quake, she would remain steadfast amidst it all. Verse 16 continues, In your God, my God. Again, there is no verb. It is the assertion that the God of Naomi, who has been her God since her marriage, is and will remain her God. Whether he provides wealth and prosperity or poverty and deprivation, she will serve this God to whom she is united. Again, as we've seen elsewhere, her words are reflective of other faithful souls found in the Bible. What she says here is a beautiful match with the words of Job. Here's what he says in Job 13. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite could not come before him. As Matthew Henry says about her words here, Ruth is an example of the grace of God inclining the soul to choose the better part. Regardless of the state of this life, be it great or be it sore, and even if it's displeasing in the ultimate sense, following the God of Israel is to always choose the better part. And although they are far distant relatives of Ruth, there is a group of people who will descend from her that will someday follow the Lord with the same marked determination. They may be alive and on this earth right now. We read about them in Revelation chapter 14. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. It is the true mark of the redeemed throughout all of the ages. Enoch, the seventh man from Adam, and in the time before the flood of Noah, was said to have walked with God. Abraham followed the Lord from his native land and walked with him all of his days. Time and again, in both testaments of the Bible, we are told to walk in the commandments of the Lord and in a manner that is worthy of him. Ruth is just one of countless examples of the faith which is found pleasing to God. Without seeing him, but only hearing of him, we please him when we follow him as we walk. In this, there is a reward which is waiting for the faithful, and that reward is even in death. Verse 17, where you die, I will die. My dear mother, as we walk in this life, so will we walk until death. And even after death, I will stay put until that day when I also die. I will not leave you in life, and should you go before me, I will stay to lay flowers on your grave. And in the day when the God of Israel calls me to my place of rest, it will be in that same place of your calling. Verse 17 goes on, and there I will be buried. We often still follow this practice today. There's a common burial ground or maybe even a mausoleum where families are jointly placed. The record of this began with Abraham and Sarah, and it continued on in the heart of Ruth towards her, her beloved mother-in-law. They would possess the same spot of soil in the hope of someday rising together at the call of the Messiah, who was promised to the people of Israel by the God of Israel. She abandoned the worthless graves of Moab, where death's hold would stay firm, and welcomed the graves of Israel, where death's sting would be removed in him. Verse 17 continues, The Lord do so to me. In these words here, Ruth now begins a petition of imprecation. It is the first such time that this is used in the Bible, and it will be seen in the books of 1 Samuel and 1 Kings. She is invoking the name of the Lord Jehovah and calling down upon herself a curse from him if she fails to adhere to the words of her solemn vow. May it be so. Her words here and to follow are kind of like an, a euphemism, which more conceal 
rather than reveal the true weight and the penalty that she should and rightfully would endure for violating this oath. Verse 17 continues, and more also. This is a way of adding additional weight to the imprecation she was calling down on herself. It is an impossible state, one which could never come about and yet which should happen if she were found to violate this pledge. In essence, it is saying if there were something more punishing than what Jehovah could mete out, then that is what I would deserve. May such horrible and awesome terrors come upon me should the truth of my words be found wanting. Verse 17 continues, if anything but death parts you and me. To complete her oath, she utters the finality of her decision. Ki hamavet yafrid beni uvenech. In these words, death is emphatic. Hamavet, the death. As the pulpit commentary says, it is as if he, she had said, death, the great divider, actually giving it life almost. Nothing but this will come between us. Verse 18, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Having heard the substance of Ruth's words, the exchange ends. The very thing that Naomi had intended to come about has come about. Her previous words were meant to show the reality of what lay ahead and to obtain a sure, truthful, and heartfelt commitment from Ruth if she were to actually return with her to Canaan. And in fact, Ruth has shown her faithfulness to the road set before them. No greater promises could come from her mouth, even if Naomi were to continue to dissuade her. Because of the gravity of what she spoke, she has shown that she will not be deterred. To Canaan, the two will travel together. Where can I from your spirit go? Or where can I from your presence flee? If I ascend into heaven, you are there, I know. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there with me. If I take the wings of the morning, indeed, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there me your hand shall lead, and your right hand shall have hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night about me shall be light. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but even shines as day, the very darkest night. Our second thought today, the Almighty has felt dealt very bitterly with me. This is verses 19 through 21. Verse 19 says, Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. This was a rocky journey, and it was no less than 50 miles in a land which is hilly, rocky, hot, and arid. If you've ever been over there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It also would have included crossing over both the Arnon and then the Jordan rivers. They would have to carry everything that they owned and the water that they would need to drink. It would not be an easy trip. It would be like picking up from Sarasota and walking to Tampa. Walking there would be a long, tedious adventure. At a normal pace, it would take about 17 hours, but with carrying their things, stopping for rest, stopping for sleep, and all of the like, it would take a minimum of between two and four days for these ladies to do this. If they lived more than the 50-mile minimum, it could have been longer. And again, as seen last week, there is a masculine instead of a feminine pronoun in the words, the two of them. There are little treasures tucked away in the book of Ruth that are yet to be explained. Verse 19 continues, And it happened when they came to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? Upon their arrival in the city, it was a buzz with the news. The translation here, and the women said, is from a single word, which is vatumarna which is literally translated, and they said, but it's in the feminine. And so the translators put it uh, with the word women to make it understandable for us. The women of the town were astonished at the person they once knew. More than 10 years had passed. Naomi would have gone out as a much younger lady and with her husband and her sons, and now she has returned, certainly looking older and more worn down from the sadness and the years. She was a widow with only a daughter-in-law tagging by her side. Any nice clothing or ornaments that she had would be missing. The exclamation is certainly akin to us saying, man, the years have been tough on that lady. Unbelievable. The entire picture is one which would have been shocking to the women of Bethlehem. The verse is a true-to-life graphic touch of reality of Naomi's situation. Verse 20, but she said to them, do not call me Naomi. The name Naomi, and we saw this 
in our first sermon on the book of Ruth is translated in a variety of ways by scholars. Some say beautiful, sweet, pleasant, lovely, something like that. And then some scholars take the I at the end of her name to be possessive, and so it would be my sweetness or my pleasantness, etc. But the I at the end of this name may be a reference to Jehovah because the name Jehovah is yod Hey vav Hey. That Yod is like an I. It's the beginning of his name. And so it would be pleasantness of the Lord. And this is certainly what is intended for a reason that we're going to see in a moment. But because of her afflictions and trials, she asked them to not call her Naomi anymore. It is no longer a fitting name for who she has become. Verse 20 goes on, call me Mara. Instead of pleasantness of the Lord, she has to be called Mara, which means bitter. In hearing her name repeated time and time again as she encountered these women of Bethlehem, she could only think that it was no longer appropriate. The Lord, the covenant God of Israel, was distant from her, and she felt the pain of it each time that her name was repeated. And so a change to reflect her sad state was needed. Call me bitter. Interestingly, the way that the name is recorded is not the normal Hebrew form of the word. It is lacking the letter H, or in Hebrew, He, at the end of her name, which is the same letter which was added to both Abraham and Sarah's name as a sign of covenant grace. It is as if she is outside of the Lord's covenant provision, wallowing in her own bitterness. Verse 20 continues, For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Only in the light of interpreting her name, pleasantness of the Lord, can the full implication of what she says in this verse be properly understood. Instead of being pleasantness of the Lord, who is the one who monitors the covenant and the covenant people, she is bitter from the Almighty, the one who bestows or withholds fruitfulness. It is a double play on her name, bitter instead of pleasant, and affliction from the Almighty instead of grace from the Lord. Her words are almost a mirror of the anguish that Job himself once felt after his many, many afflictions. In Job 27, we read this, As God lives, who has taken away my justice, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter. Both of these people failed to see that the kindness of the Lord was just around the corner. Thinking they were the objects of God's wrath, they had misinterpreted the sad and troublesome hardships that they had faced. What seemed at the time to be harsh and cruel was in due time to be replaced with joy and with comfort. But even more, the troubles they faced had served a larger purpose as their lives had been used to show us the greater and often unseen hand of God as he unfolds history in a way which displays his sovereignty and his redemptive plans for us. Verse 21, I went out full. Now think about that for a second. I went out full. Naomi had forgotten that she went out with her family during a time of famine in search of bread and livelihood. If she was full, it was only because they had eaten their last meal before departing. But the overwhelming exaggerations of memories colored over the original reason why they had left in the first place. All she could think of was who and what she had left with. Her memories were of a husband and two sons and the things that they had carried along for their temporary pilgrimage. She had forgotten that she had left a land which was beset by a lack of food. Verse 21 goes on, And the Lord has brought me home again empty. The word translated here, empty, does not mean exactly that. It is an adverb rather than an adjective. Her words are, Ve'rakam hishavani Yehovah. And emptily has brought me home again the Lord. It is as if the entire process of the journey had been without any positive benefit at all from the Lord. And he continually drained her as they went through those 10 years away from the land. Again, in her misery, she has failed to acknowledge that Ruth, who had clung to her and promised to continue clinging to her, no matter what would come their way, was right there at her side. The faithful words on that dusty road leading home from Moab were overshadowed by her own pitiful condition in the eyes of the women of Bethlehem. And in her return, she is now in a land that is productive and fruitful once again. She may have come home emptily, in some respects it's true, but she has come home with and she has come home to great abundance in other ways. As she will find out before her days are through, the daughter-in-law that she now has and who she's taken along with her is worth more to her than seven sons. 
The Lord will heap upon her a good and blessed latter life, just as he did upon his faithful servant Job. Verse 21 continues, Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me? In her words, and based on the meaning of her name, she is repeating a pun. Why do you call me pleasantness of the Lord, since the Lord has testified against me? She's, she's misreading what happened here. She's finite, she's in time, and she's unknowing of the future. Like Job, what she sees as the Lord testifying against her is simply a lack of a full resource of information that God possesses. Job misunderstood his circumstances, and Naomi has misunderstood him as well. And like Job's friends, she is seeing her afflictions as a result of penal punishment. In other words, she feels that she must have done something wrong, and the Lord is punishing her. But there are other forms of punishment that are not at all, or other forms of suffering that are not at all forms of punishment. The book of Job shows this as do many other examples in the Bible. A perfect example of this is found in John chapter 9. Here's what it says. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They're thinking penal punishment. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Like the man born blind, like Job, and like Naomi, and many others, suffering is a part of the fallen world in which we live. At times, that suffering is used by God to demonstrate his glory. This is the case with the life and trials of Naomi. And if you want a perfect example of this from our lifetime, our modern times, I can give you a name and most of your ears will pick right up, Johnny Erickson Tata. This lady, 17 years old, had a bright future in front of her. And what happens? She dives into the water, breaks her neck, becomes a quadriplegic. And she could be like Stephen Hawking's sitting in a wheelchair and blaming God for all his problems and saying there's no God and, you know, just denying that he even exists. But instead, she has been one of the most faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ in our lifetime. She's gone to almost every country on earth, helping people in ministries, giving wheelchairs. I remember one time she's in Vietnam handing out wheelchairs to people. She's spoken at the Billy Graham Crusades. This lady lies in bed. It takes her one to two hours to get up to start her day, and her husband has to help her through every bit of it. And the same to go back to bed at night. Maybe even three hours, I think, is how long she it takes her just to get prepared to start her day. She lies there and she gets bed sores and they're painful and they ooze. And yet she's praising the Lord. You listen to her, her voice on the radio and you were thinking you were listening to somebody that had a house full of money, a house full of, you know, fun and toys and out every day having the high life. And yet she suffers more than any of us in this room will ever, ever, ever be able to imagine in this life unless it happens to us. And yet she continuously is faithful. She's faithful to the Lord. She's faithful to the proclamation of Jesus Christ in her life. Now, to some extent, every one of us fails to properly interpret the signs which surround us as we live out our lives before the Lord. What is needed is exactly what I'm sure Johnny Erickson Tata has in her mind every moment of the day. It's a firm belief in the promises that are found in Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good for those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. I can imagine her saying that to herself a hundred times a day as the pains come and as, you know, she has to have somebody do something for her that we would consider completely degrading because she can't do it for herself. All things work together for good for those who are the called according to his purposes. Verse 21 continues, And the Almighty has afflicted me. Her words in Hebrew are, Veshadai hera'a li. This form of the verb hara'a implies an evildoer or a doer of wickedness or simply evil or wicked. If taken in that light, she is actually ascribing the evil that was accomplished to the Almighty. As the pulpit commentary says, she is walking on a theological precipice where it is not needful that we should accompany her. Instead of ascribing the evils that come our way to God, it is right that we humble ourselves and our hearts before his providential hand just as Johnny Erickson Tata continues to do on the radio day after day. The afflictions we bear may not do us very much good, but the way that we carry ourselves in the midst of them is what is right, what is honorable, and what is noble. And above all, we are never, never to ascribe evil, evil doing to the Lord. 
It is we humans who choose the path that we are on, and it is the Lord God who has worked to correct it and to put us on a new and an eternally good path. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? Who is it that lays out before us the path we trod? Let us never contemplate such perversity. It is fair when things go ill to be dejected and lacking strength, but is it right to rem- but it is right to remember that God has not forgotten us. He will return us to paradise in eternal joy and due length, and we have this certainty because he gave us his son, Jesus. So, when trials, heartaches, or much loss comes our way, remember not to blame God, thus making matters worse. For he is God, and he is working out every single day his glorious plan, when soon there will be no more curse. Our third and final thought today is the time of the barley harvest, which is verse 22. So Naomi returned. So Naomi returned. She has come once again to the land of her birth, which is the land of promise. She has crossed the Jordan, and now she has crossed it once again. She has again come to the land of favor and blessing. Verse 22 continues, And Ruth the Moabite is her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. This continues to reiterate what we already know. Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, has come. It identifies her specifically, though, as a Moabitess, to remind us of the account of Lot and his daughters. They were relatives of Abraham, but they were not of the covenant line. And more, the Moabites had hired Balaam the prophet to curse Israel as they traveled towards the land of Canaan. Later, they caused Israel to trip up and fall into sexual immorality and idolatry. She is a Gentile from what many would consider an unsavory line of people. However, her ancestor Moab was born to a woman who was looking forward to the coming Messiah. Unless you saw the sermon on Lot and his daughters, you might not understand this, but it explains why this verse in Ruth continues with the unlikely thought that she returned from the country of Moab. One commentary said that this verse is both remarkable at once for its simplicity and its inexactitude. They say this because Ruth didn't actually return from Moab, did she? Rather, she came with Naomi who returned. However, if this verse is taken in light of their great ancestor who slept with her father in order to have a child who would lead them to the Messiah, then Ruth did, in fact, return to the land of promise. They once lived in it and left many, many generations earlier. Now she had come home. Words are not wasted in the Bible, and words are neither redundant nor are they inexact. They are precise, they are carefully chosen, and they are intended to show us God's overall plans, which come in short, interesting sentences and concepts. In this, Ruth truly did return to Canaan through the loins of her great ancestor Lot and his faith-filled daughter. Verse 22 finishes with these words. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi and Ruth returned to Canaan and have arrived at the house of bread, which is Bethlehem. It is the spot where the Lord Jesus, a descendant of Ruth herself, will be born in about a thousand years, a little more than that. And it is at the time of the barley harvest. The barley harvest is ready for reaping during the month of Abib in the Bible, which is our March-April time frame. It commences during the Feast of Unleavened Bread when the first fruits of the harvest are cut and then presented to the Lord, which is a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is at this same time of the year when the Lord was crucified and then when he rose from the dead that these ladies arrive in the house of bread. Barley, barley is known as the crop of hairy ears because of its hairy appearance. The word barley in Hebrew is seora which is closely related to the word se'ar, which is hair. Hair in the Bible indicates an awareness of things, especially of sin. The goat, for example, which is used in Leviticus for the sin offering is known as sa'ir, another very closely related word. We have an awareness of sin in the hairy goat sin offering. Then in number six, there's a type of person who is known as a Nazarite, This is someone who made a vow or was consecrated to the Lord in some way. During the time of that vow, they were never, never to cut their hair. Samson was a Nazarite from birth, as were Samuel and John the Baptist. Paul took a Nazarite vow in the book of Acts. The hair on the head was a reminder of their state, just as the hairy goat is a reminder of sin. 
It is man's place to be aware. We are sentient beings. We're ever in search of more knowledge and experience and hopefully seeking out the cure to the sad state that we're in. These things are all going to be seen and revealed in the story of Ruth as it continues. So stay tuned for these. Much is in store for these ladies in the coming three chapters and it all, all revolves around the work of Jesus Christ. But it is also a true story of real people who are living out their lives in the stream of time. God has carefully sewn them into the picture of greater things that affect all of us. It is a marvelous way of him showing us that he is attentive to all of the big things in history, but all of the little details as well. And one of the little details in this big picture, but which is actually the biggest detail at all of all in our individual lives, is where we will spend eternity. God has worked out a plan where we too can return to the promised land, and it all revolves around the giving of his son for us. So I would ask for just one more moment, as I do each week, to share with you how you too can be certain of eternal life in the presence of God because of Jesus Christ. The Bible shows us that we have sin in our lives. The hair on our head, if nothing else, can remind us of that. That guy has hair, and that girl has hair, and everybody's got hair, and it's showing us as a reminder, when we see the hair, we had to think, you know, that person has sin in them. All have sinned. All have sinned. And all fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible says that that sin results in something. The wages of sin is death. We go to work and we get a pay because we have earned our pay. Well, we sin and we have earned death. The wages of sin is death. But God in his great grace and mercy developed a plan before he even created the world where he would send his son to take care of the things that we foul up so badly. So he sent Jesus Christ to die in our place as a substitute. But, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We've sinned and we deserve death, but God gives us a gift. That gift is something that you cannot earn. You can't say, I'll give you a dollar for that $1,000 Rolex watch and have it considered a gift. It might be a really good deal, but it's not a gift. A gift is something that you simply reach out and take. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And how do you receive that gift? By calling on the name of the Lord. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's it. It is by grace you are saved through faith and there's nothing else added into it. You don't need to do things in order to please God. And if you try to do things in order to please God, you're going to offend God because he is offering you a gift. So don't offend God. Just simply receive what Jesus Christ has done. His blood will purge you of all of your sins. And someday we will walk in the presence of the Lamb and of God for all eternity, covered by his righteousness. What a deal. Don't turn it down. If you've never called on Jesus Christ, do it today. Our closing verse today, oh, tell me this doesn't fit what we just saw. Proverbs 18, 24. A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Imagine how faithful that lady was to go the distance with Naomi, sticking closer than even a brother. Next week, Ruth 2, 1 through 7. Yes, seven verses. We'll try to get through all of them. Whose young woman is this is what it's called. That'll be our fourth, fourth Ruth sermon. And as I uh, say each week before we have our uh, weekly poem, I'd like to remind you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. He knows your trials, your troubles, and your woes, and he is there with you through them. So cling to him. Cling to him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? Our poem today is called Your People, My People, Your God, My God. And she said, look, as you can see, your sister-in-law Orpah has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Don't be slack. But Ruth said in words heartfelt and true, entreat me not to leave. Please don't do so or to turn back from following after you for wherever you go, I too will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge too. And your people shall my people be. And your God, my God, it is true. I shall not ever leave you. This you shall see. Where you die, I will die. May it be so. And there I will be buried. I speak plainly. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go along, she stopped speaking, her determination strong. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, when finally the miles were spent. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. 
And the women said, is this Naomi? She was a different woman. They could plainly see. But she said to them just the same, do not call me anymore Naomi. Instead, now Mara is my name, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full many years before, and emptily has the Lord returned me to my door. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty, me, he is afflicted. I have been tried by his trial and convicted. So Naomi returned along with Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, the future unknown and unsure. Now they came to Bethlehem, the town, at the beginning of the barley harvest. There they together settled down, as the Bible story does attest. Lord, help us to see your hand in all things, as directing our lives for evil, for not for evil, but for good. Help us to accept everything that our life brings and to honor you at all times as we should. Yes, troubles come our way, but there are always blessings too. And both the troubles and the blessings are being used by you. For our good and for your glory, everything comes as a part of your plan for us. This is the message we find in your gospel story, and it is all because of the work of Jesus. Yes, thank you, Lord, for such kind and attentive care for us and thank you for our blessed Redeemer, our Lord Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Oh, yes, Lord. It is, it is so encouraging when our hearts are, are down to come to a story like Ruth and to see that other people have had it much worse than we have. And yet even those people were not out of your attentive care. And that there are people in our lives that you have strategically placed that we can go to. Got to feel bad for uh, the movie actor that shot himself or hung himself a few weeks ago. He thought, oh, there's just no hope at all. And yet there is hope. There's hope on our knees in your presence. There's hope in the people you put in our lives. There's hope in a young daughter-in-law for Naomi. There's hope in the Lord God of Israel. There's hope everywhere we look if we will just open our eyes and look. So help us not to get turned inward and to wallow in our misery, but to lift our hearts, our eyes, and our voices to you in praise. And you will reward us. I know that you will. Each one of us who has these trials and these troubles, be with us, guide us, and lead us to that higher rock than ourselves. And we'll be sure to praise you when we get there with our arms outstretched and our hearts ready to leap out of our, our chests. What a great God you are, wonderful and perfect in all your ways. We praise you and we do so in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I add in just a couple words, as you all know, all I do is I add in the blessings that the Lord himself would have given. And so this is a memory of his work, his death, proclaiming it until he comes. And uh, Paul wrote there in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And he would have given thanks over it by saying these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu olam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And so let's take that moment and examine ourselves.
until the Lord calls us home to the true house of bread. This is our house of bread. So please come forward. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. Here you go. At the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever, world without end. Amen. Amen. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come here and to share in the Lord's table with each other and uh, in your presence. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ our Lord, who did die on that cross, and who did rise again from that tomb. And uh, we'll be sure all throughout the week to remember that to think on you and the good things that you've given us to get into your word and to read it to tell others about your goodness give us these opportunities and help us to follow through with them so that you will be glorified we love you and we praise you and we do so in the name of jesus christ amen